Okay, so we're back. We survived, and we're uh, we're back to record another podcast, another episode of Going with the Flow. I'm Ryan Nolan, and I'm Natalie Dragota. Today we're going to start it off with a nice light quiz. The quiz topic today is some basic things that every Canadian should know about Indigenous people. Just before we get going, I haven't seen any of these questions, so (laughs) in order to keep it authentic, I'm going in blind here, so hopefully my knowledge is good. And some of them are tough, so not everyone is going to know these things. The whole idea behind it is that we should know a little bit more than we do. Should we do like a time thing, or should we just kind of go with it let's just go with the flow (laughs) (laughs) okay so for the first question so how many classifications do we use in canada to identify the different indigenous populations we did learn this in a class last semester so i'm going to say there's three separate categories indigenous refers to the majority of them so i'm going to say three yes yeah, see? Starting off on a good foot. Yeah, not bad, not bad. So, do you know what these three are? Like we said before, so indigenous would be one, and that's kind of an umbrella term. And then there's uh, Inuit, which refers to people from, not the Arctic Circle, but the northern regions. And then the third is Métis, I believe. Correct. Good for you. The first one is Inuit, and you were right. It's used to describe the indigenous people primarily in the northern regions of Canada. The second one is Métis, which is used to describe indigenous people who have mixed European and indigenous ancestry. And they mainly are in the prairie provinces, but also in other parts of Canada as well. And then the third one is First Nations, which is used to describe all other indigenous people who aren't ethnically related to Métis or Inuit people. Okay, so I got that one wrong. First Nations. See? I'm learning something new already. There you go. Okay, so good job on the first one there. So second question is, in what year was the last residential school shut down in Canada? The last residential school in Canada was shut down in 1996. Correct. Good job. This, if you think about it, is bananas, because this means that when... I was born in 1993. All these things were still occurring in Canada when I was just having like this normal upbringing, you know, living with my parents. All these things were still going on until I was three years old. It kind of adds some perspective to think 1996 and might have been at the start of both of our lifetimes, but still it was occurring while we've been alive. Again, I learned that last year. I guess the program that I'm taking is really starting to stick. Yeah, definitely. It's also interesting because during all the civil rights movements that peaked in the 1960s, this was still happening while other groups were fighting for anti-racism, anti sexism this group was still being oppressed at the same time which i think was interesting and then for the third question what are some popular sports or activities in canada whose origination lies in indigenous roots first lacrosse and hockey are two national sports both have a background in indigenous culture and then for activities i want to say like canoeing or kayaking like that kind of activity correct again this isn't rehearsed so this is the first time i'm hearing (laughs) these questions yeah so kayaking canoeing definitely lacrosse 100 percent hockey is theorized to having been invented by the Mohawk tribe. They're not 100% sure. They think that it was invented by the Mohawk tribe. Very cool. Yeah. For the last question, which is a little heavier, unfortunately, is what intergenerational social problems do many Indigenous populations in Canada face today in comparison to non-Indigenous people in Canada as a result of colonialism? Oh my god, that's quite the question. (laughs) I was not prepared for even half of that. So, okay. I'm I'm gonna start off with 
I believe that indigenous people in our country are overrepresented in a lot of really negative categories, making reference to the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, federal and provincial prison system, and I don't know, that was a hard question. Honestly, I think you know all of it. I just think that there's so many different things that we've talked about in in class so far that it's hard to pinpoint every single one. But a lot of the social problems, you're right, the overrepresentation among missing and murdered individuals, as well as the overrepresentation primarily, like, I think it's youth correctional facilities, higher rates of intimate partner violence and sexual violence, higher rates of poverty, higher rates of suicide, poor health status because higher rates of diabetes, heart disease, and the list goes on. Okay. I got, what, three out of four? I think you did pretty good. You should give yourself a pat on the back. Okay, so that concludes our quiz portion of the podcast. So next we're going to be moving on to GWTF, Trailblazer of the Week. So this one goes to a lady named Mary Two Axe Erling who was a Mohawk woman born on the Kahnawake Reserve in Quebec. So at the age of 18, she moved to New York City, where she met Edward Early, who was an Irish-American. And because of the Indian Act, she had lost her Indian status and could no longer live in her home, reserve, or participate in the life of her community. So she was not having any of this, and she was the first one to begin advocating for the rights of Indigenous women and for changes to the Indian Act. In 1968, she actually established the Equal Rights for Indian Women Association, which was a provincial organization that fought for these changes. And in spite of pushback from many sides, she endured and continued to push on. And in 1985, Parliament passed Bill C-31, which amended the Indian Act, removing the discriminatory measure that took away women's Indian status and also restored status to thousands of First Nations women. So Mary Tuax Early was the woman to do this, and she was also the first woman to regain her Indian status in a ceremony with David Crombie, the Minister for Indian Affairs and Northern Development in 1985. So here's to you, Mary. That brings us to our first topic of the day. So we're going to start off by talking about A recent blog post regarding the lecture given by Candy Palmater at the Seneca Newnham campus. We were lucky enough to attend this lecture on January the 14th. Candy, who's a well-known CBC personality, a broadcaster, actor, lawyer, writer of her own television show. She's also been a longtime advocate for improving the situations of Indigenous communities across the country. So she'll be giving a four-part lecture series. So this was the first of her four-part lecture series at the Seneca campuses. And this one was focused on kind of a background of her Mi'kmaq culture and her experiences being an Indigenous woman in a colonized country. Candy was born and raised in New Brunswick, and her family was part of the Mi'kmaq community, which is located along the northern shore of New Brunswick, near the Quebec border. The Mi'kmaqs were known as the gatekeepers of North America during the colonization period, and this was because of their geographic location. If you think about where the Europeans landed, it was they were the first point of contact, so she made reference to that a, a few times throughout the lecture. And a fun fact that I learned was that their lineage can be found on that territory through archaeological evidence for over 10,000 years. You talk about having first dibs on an area. They were here long, long before the Europeans got here, and that was the primary focus of Candy's lecture. So kind of to start it off, Candy made reference to a paper that she had to write early on in her academic career, explaining her argument from a post-colonial stance. Is, col- is colonialism still a part of our society today? What do you think, Natalie? 
I think if you were to ask me five years ago, I would say no. As we're learning more about the dark history of, of Canada and what's still going on with our Indigenous communities and uh, the negligence that's shown towards these social problems, I'm going to say that I agree with her. I don't think there's such thing as post-colonialism. I think we're still living in it, and, and it's just not as visible. It's still there. I, I agree. When you look at all of the systems that ensure that our country and our society runs a certain way, all of those were based on colonization. Before European influence, none of those systems would be in place, and they all play a pretty significant role in influencing our day-to-day. So to go back to the article, Candy makes reference to the Mi'kmaq people seeing the European newcomers, as she referred to them, as part of the land. So as such, they were to be treated with respect, welcomed, and some would say the Europeans were invaders, some would say newcomers. It all depends on which side you were on. Kind of back to the point about the Europeans being known as newcomers. How do you think the recent immigration policies in some North American countries, not Canada, would be viewed by the Mi'kmaq people? Uh, Definitely very differently, because from what I gathered in her presentation was that they were very welcoming of all people, actually encouraged each other to live in symbiotic relationships with all people, with the earth, with animals and everything. Whereas I think now we're much more apprehensive about letting people in. I think a lot of that has to do with the media. One thing that will always stick with me that she mentioned, I'm always going to repeat. Recently in Canada, you hear a lot of people talking about immigration and you might hear people say things like, we need to stop letting so many people here and things like that. And she said something that I thought really could change someone's perspective on that whole immigration idea. She said that the next time someone says something to you about immigration, just remember that if it wasn't for the Mi'kmaq people who opened their arms and welcomed the European settlers, none of you would be here. And we are all immigrants if you think about it. From that perspective, we are. So I really like that. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed that. Uh, and she made that analogy. I think she kind of furthered the point by saying, not only would you have frozen to death and starved, you, <laughs> you would have not been able to put your roots down and establish. Just sitting and listening to Candy speak, she's so passionate and knowledgeable and obviously upset. And you can tell there's some anger behind some of the words that she says. And the way she words what she has to say was very powerful. And I, I completely agree. Yeah, I've heard like a lot of speakers before but nothing really resonated with me the way that she did just the way that she can convey her thoughts and her feelings and having the dual perspective of being half white and half indigenous also gives her that interesting perspective that makes it her a little different and gives her the ability to see things from both sides which is also really cool another thing that i really enjoyed about that lecture was she made reference to her style of thinking Remember that when she talked about circular as opposed to linear? Yes. When she described the concept of circular thinking, that was the first time I clued into maybe that's the way my mind worked. We've all kind of been taught a linear way to start here and work that way to a problem. But when you're sitting in a group of people and you're trying to solve a problem, it's a circle. It's a very fluid and a natural progression as opposed to start here, get here. That was another takeaway from the lecture. 
Yeah, I never really thought about it from that standpoint. She mentioned how judging on where you come from and who you are, everyone has a different way of thinking. And uh, I do agree with her. You know, we go into school and there's certain curriculums and certain structures we're supposed to follow and certain formats we're supposed to follow. But oftentimes we forget that, you know, if you're from a different country or if you're Indigenous Canadian, your style of thinking might not necessarily fit that box that the educational system wants you to fit in. And I mean, those are can be very hard, I think, for these people. Candy did make reference to she struggled early on in her academic career with writing a paper in the traditional start there, finish there. As she learned how to write a certain way to be successful academically, the way they want you to write, she realized the importance of her own way of thinking. If you can have both, then that's very good as well. Okay, so we'll move on. The next topic we're going to be talking about is the strawberry ceremony in Toronto. So this ceremony has to do with the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, and it occurs annually on Valentine's Day. So this is actually the 14th year of the rally in Toronto, and it takes place at Toronto's police headquarters. The significance of strawberry, and this is something pretty interesting that I learned is that strawberry and Ojibwe are known as heartberries. Oh, I like that. I did not know that. You don't really you don't really think about it until you cut one in half and you see exactly what it resembles. So hmm. they're also significant because they are the first berry to grow during the growing seasons. So the first one's up, the first ones that are ready to harvest. The strawberry ceremony, like I was saying, is is done in order to raise awareness and ask for police action regarding the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. So to get a little deeper into this topic, I'm going to give you statistics on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. So within the first six months of 2018, there were 2,758 indigenous women reported missing and 5,711 reported missing in 2016. Aboriginal women make up only 4.3% of the total Canadian population, but are significantly overrepresented among missing and murdered women, making up 11.3% of all missing women in Canada. Some areas that are more popular in which Indigenous women and girls go missing around are... One of them is Lake Superior. So according to anecdotal research and an article posted by CBC News in 2013, along with a couple other articles posted around the same topic... Indigenous women and children from northern reservations are being transported on freight boats on Lake Superior between Duluth, Minnesota and Thunder Bay, Ontario. They are then sold into the sex trade on either sides of the border, and it's said that most of them never return. Uh, According to interviews, the terms, air quotes, boat parties and boat whores are intergenerational terms that have been well embedded in Indigenous communities, which makes you think, has this been going on ever since the initial assimilation of their people and why is it not talked about more and on the other side of the country it's occurring as well so there's a very interesting vice documentary which focuses on they call it the highway of tears so it's highway 16 in prince rupert in british columbia in bc the most high profile serial killer was robert picton pretty sure he was convicted of i think it was 27 murders most of which were indigenous women so those are the two hot spots in the country that experience these issues yes so in regards to 
the Highway of Tears as well. There isn't a very good relationship between the RCMP and the indigenous communities in British Columbia. I feel like not enough has been done in order to address these missing and murdered women and get more media coverage on it. So in 2018, Diane Big Eagle, who's mother of missing Danita Faith Big Eagle, she launched a $600 million lawsuit against the RCMP. And the lawsuit describes the RCMP's systemic negligence, inadequate investigative training, and attitudes of racism towards the investigation of her daughter's case. So that just kind of paints a picture of the relationship between some of these communities and the people that are supposed to be keeping everything kind of under control and helping people to feel safe and unfortunate. Absolutely. So that's all we have for you today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, check out our weekly blog posts, which are available at red.projecttoronto.org. And if you like our podcast, please subscribe at red.podcast, which can be found wherever quality podcasts exist. Thank you. Bye.